Hey guys, welcome to Unaborted with Seth Gruber. All right, well, it is Monday, November 2nd, which means tomorrow is the election. And so we wanted to bring you what I believe, without tooting my own horn too much, is the most powerful message that I have ever given on the issue of abortion. And this was at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills, with Jack Hibbs, who so graciously invited me to speak in October and give a message that I entitled, Surrender is Not an Option. And that's certainly true for the Christian, and nowhere is that more true than the issue of abortion. For far too long, the church, its leaders, and its lay people have been abdicating their spiritual responsibility to be salt and light in the culture, to promote righteousness and restrain evil. We recognize that God's laws are a blessing. They're the wise restraints that make men free. We understand that law functions as a bulwark against the evil tendencies of man to restrain his evil and to ensure a system of freedom, which was what this country was built upon. But Christians have abdicated and removed themselves from that sphere of influence as the only people who can hold government to account as those who are predisposed to protect life because we believe every human being is created in the image of God. It's time for us to hit that battlefield, to reassert our moral and spiritual authority as the moral compass of the culture and to engage. Surrender is not an option. So enjoy this message. Share this with someone. Pray that it breaks their heart and boils their blood and moves them to abandon their pro-abortion beliefs and embrace the position and message of life. Surrender is not an option. Buckle up. Here we go. Good morning, family. How are you? Thank you so much for being here. Isn't it nice to see people's mouths and faces? <laughs> it's so nice to see you smiling back at me. What a, what a gift. What a, what a strange gift to say, one. Well, as Pastor Jack said, I'm a pro-life speaker. I speak across the country in faith-based high schools, secular high schools, universities, youth groups, churches, conferences, equipping and training people to defend life and challenging people to change their minds and advocate on behalf of our unborn neighbors. But as a pro-life speaker, who's also, by the way, white and male, as you can tell, um, you know, a lot of people don't take to that very friendly. And so I have to go around justifying my career many times to pastors who I'm pleading with to engage on this issue, to be salt in the culture and to defend the lives of our pre-born neighbors. And of course, usually I get a shrugging of shoulders. So it is so encouraging to be welcomed to a church where Pastor Jack and others have been fighting this battle longer than I've been alive and are saying yes and amen. So why don't you thank your church? <laughs> Uh, by the way, uh, Pastor Jack asked me to say that, so uh, you know, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I don't want to get in trouble. But if he had asked me to say it, I, I would have said, of course, that's true. Amen, brother. Well, I attended Westmont College in Santa Barbara. I graduated 2014, and I founded the first and at the time only pro-life club in the university's history. And so I be you know, came quite unpopular on campus and created quite a firestorm by saying, well, you're a Christian college, you need to do something to help end abortion and equip the next generation to defend life. But no, oh, you can't say that, right? 
So I always had professors emailing me saying, Seth, you know, you, you shouldn't call abortion killing. You shouldn't call it genocide. There's, there's lots of room within Christianity for us to disagree on abortion, you know, th things like that. So my faculty advisor of this pro-life club I had started at Westmont College sends me this email correspondence one time that he was in, in a thread with different professors at Westmont, okay? And he just incidentally got included in this email thread. He's like, Seth, you should look at what this professor is saying about abortion at Westmont. Okay, professor who signed a statement of faith at a Christian college who's motto is Christ preeminent in all things, except apparently the prenatal Christ. And here's what this professor had to say. The moral particularities of abortion are so fine textured and open textured that Manichaean distinctions about being pro or anti-abortion strike me as ethically obtuse. <laughs> our community and our students are best served when our chapel speakers invite us to tarry in the liminal spaces of complexity. Now, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> And I wish I could tell you that that was just a parody of professorial thinking. Uh, but actually, friends, the truth is much sadder. The truth is that that is a window into our culture's deep-seated confusion on the issue of abortion. And unfortunately, that confusion has pervaded the church of Christ. These are not just ideas that kooky professors at Christian universities discuss with students. This type of moral and spiritual confusion is invading the pulpit. Now, not this one, of course, but many other pulpits, right? Well, most notably, this has come from Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Church in New York City. Now, I have benefited for many years from Pastor Tim Keller's teaching. He's been called the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century, and he has done an incredible job defending the Christian worldview and the gospel in America today. But friends, his recent statements on abortion and on the role of the Christian in politics to protect unborn children is scandalous. He put this on Facebook two and a half weeks ago. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil. Oh, good, right? But it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country, or which policies are most effective. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which the Bible does not speak to directly. This means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, or every Christian must vote for, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. End quote. So according to Pastor Tim Keller's reasoning, friends, supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s was acceptable for the Christian because don't you know, the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in decreasing slavery. According to Keller's reasoning, supporting Hitler and his regime was acceptable for German Christians in 1940 because brother, sisters, the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective in ending the Holocaust. You have liberty of conscience to vote for the party of the Holocaust. In short, Tim Keller apparently believes that clerical silence or political neutrality in the face of child sacrifice is an acceptable means of evangelism. But it's not. Keller has forgotten the great words of William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist who once said that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. But friends, this moral and spiritual confusion on abortion has unfortunately become par for the course for many pastors and Christian leaders today who, like Keller, do not believe 
do not believe they have a duty or obligation to prevent the slaughter of God's image bearers in a womb that Christ once dwelled in. That is lost on them. And friends, I can testify to this confusion because I speak to these pastors, I speak to these students, I speak in these faith-based high schools and colleges who ought to be raising up the next generation to be ambassadors for Christ, salt and light in the culture, and ambassadors for the unborn. And instead are telling them, you don't even have to act politically to protect preborn children. In fact, you have liberty of conscience to vote for the party of genocide responsible for, committed to, and profiting off of the killing of children in the womb in the first place. Freedom, brother, is for freedom that Christ sets you free, right? Did you know the other side understands the importance of reaching the next generation with their ideas? This is why the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Alicia Garza, launched an organization with the former president of Planned Parenthood last year called Supermajority. What was the goal of this organization? To train up two million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election. Seems like they understand that the fight for the future of America is the fight for the posterity of America. Get them while they're young, and they'll serve you forever. And yet we are doing nothing to equip and raise up the next generation to be ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors for the unborn. So friends, while our politics seems to be falling apart and the church seems to be laying down her arms and her spiritual duties, we cannot surrender is not an option for the Christian. And nowhere is that more true than the issue of abortion. Now, I'm going to pause and tell you why speaking out against abortion and being pro-life is so integral to the Christian faith. Now, maybe you're thinking, Seth, we get it. This is Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. We understand. But with so many people watching online and so many people visiting, I just want to take a brief aside and I want to explain to you why being pro-life and acting in a pro-life way, living out your pro-life convictions is so central to the life of the Christian. The pro-life response is the only proper response of the Christian to abortion. Let me be clear, there is no unity between being pro-choice and following Jesus, between saying, I love the Lord, but also let's kill babies created in the image of God in a womb Christ once dwelled in. There is no unity between those two worldviews. So let me explain to you why this is so central to the life of the Christian. Pastor Jack mentioned Proverbs 31.8, right? Now I know you're thinking, isn't that what I tell my wife to read when I want her to be a better wife? No, don't say that, okay? But prior to the Proverbs 31 wife, right, it says in Proverbs 31.8 to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. What an appropriate term. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. And you know, pro-life Christians, we read that and we go, well, that's the unborn. Of course it is. They can't speak up for themselves. But listen, there is a deeper truth to this verse, something that if we don't get, we'll miss the centrality of pro-life expression to the life of the Christian. As I was reading this one time years ago in preparation for a sermon, I realized something. I realized that apart from Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, on the cross, we are also those unable to speak up for themselves. Who of us can stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, perfect record, baby, check out this. Open up the gates of glory, right? None of us can say that. Why? We can't speak up for ourselves. We can't vouch for our own record. There is not one who obeys. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So what does this mean? It means that when we were unable to speak up for ourselves, utterly incapable, Christ spoke up for us. 
and in so doing, died on the cross, offered us eternal salvation, freely given and hopefully freely received. So how can we not speak up for unborn children who are equally unable to speak up for themselves? Listen, pro-life expression is simply the correct response of the heart to the gospel. Love is I have loved you. I have saved you, go save others. Now, obviously, this means eternally, right? We want to save people's souls, but certainly it must apply to children in a womb who literally are physically unable to speak up for themselves. That's why this is so central to the Christian life. We're merely responding to the fact that we've been saved. 1 John 2 says, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Who's an advocate? Someone who speaks up for someone else. Christ did that for us. How can we not for unborn children? Listen, friends, there can be no peace in this country. There can be no peace in the church as long as unborn children can be rounded up by a million a year and have their limbs ripped off of their body and you're supposed to call it reproductive justice and fund it with your tax dollars. Real peace comes through strength. And peace in the womb will only come when Christians abandon their obsession with comfort, gird up their loins, enter the battlefield, and fight on behalf of those who cannot. Speak on behalf of those who cannot. So what are we doing this morning? Well, we're going to gear you up to hit that battlefield and engage the culture for life. To engage the culture for life, Christians must bring moral, spiritual, and political clarity to the issue of abortion. And you would think that if you get the moral issue right or the spiritual issue, the political clarity would follow, but it doesn't. So we as Christians need to be equipped to bring that clarity to the culture, to be salt, preservative in the culture, and to graciously reach out to our brothers and sisters who are lost in their thinking on this issue. And that, that lostness is leading to apathy. It's leading to the type of ideas Keller espouses when he says you have liberty of conscience to either not vote or to vote for the very party instituting genocide. How do we bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion, friends? This is important because what does the other side say? They say abortion is a deeply complex moral issue. It's very complex. So it's best left to women's own conscience. Ever heard, don't impose your morality on me, right? Well, there's only one question we have to answer to determine if abortion is a very morally complex debate or if it's a morally clear, straightforward debate. And to answer what that one question is, I want to tell you a brief anecdote for a second, okay? You're the second service. You've had a little more coffee, right? I want you to expand your imagination with me. I want you to imagine that you're standing at your kitchen sink cleaning dishes one evening. God hasn't blessed you with a dishwasher, unfortunately. So there you are cleaning them by hand. And as you're cleaning your dishes, your three-year-old toddler walks up behind you. Okay, your back is turned, and you hear your toddler say, Mommy or Daddy, can I kill this? Now, what would be the first question out of your mouth in response to that question? What is it? Kill what? Because if you turn around and he's holding a cockroach, Dad says, here, son, here's a hammer, squishy, squishy, don't tell Mom. (laughs) But if he's holding the newborn neighbor kitty, I'm guessing you'd have a different reply. Some of you are like, if you hate cats, that's fine. I won't judge you. Okay. Don't kill cats, but whatever. But if you turn around and he's holding his little sister by the throat, you need counseling. Okay. You couldn't answer the question, can I kill this until you first answered the question, what is it, right? Pretty straightforward. Why should it be any different on the issue of abortion? We can't honestly answer the question, can we kill the unborn, whatever the unborn is, until we first answer the question, what is the unborn? 
Greg Kokel, a Christian apologist, defender of the faith and friend of this church, once said that if the unborn are not human, no justification for abortion is necessary. Does that make sense? You don't need to justify abortion if the thing being aborted is not a human. In that case, it's no different than clipping your fingernails. Nobody cares. Have as many abortions as you'd like. But then he says, however, if the unborn are human, no justification for abortion is adequate. You can't provide a moral justification for the limb dismemberment of a human if they're a human. So the entire debate turns on this question, what is the unborn? And listen, we can answer this question really well, by the way, and we don't even have to turn to the Bible to make our case to a secular world. We can do that, and we're going to get to that. But because all truth is God's truth, we can defend God's truth in any sphere of knowledge. So we're going to answer the question, what is the unborn? But before we do, friends, I want you equipped to engage the culture, right? I want you to have pro-life arrows in your quiver to be effective. So I want you to notice something. The burden of proof is not on you to answer the question, what is the unborn? The burden of proof is on those saying, we can kill whatever is in the womb. They're assuming that it's not a human, therefore we can kill it through all nine months of pregnancy. Well, you better prove that what we're killing isn't a human being with human rights. So notice, I don't want you to feel this overwhelming burden to always have to justify your beliefs. You're not the one saying we can kill what's in the womb. The people saying that have the burden of proof to justify it's not a human. But we can answer this question, and we have a really good answer to it. We answer the question, what is the unborn, to bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion in two ways. We answer it scientifically, and we answer it philosophically. Now, why do we have to answer it in both ways? Well, the science tells us what is in the womb, but unfortunately, proving that the unborn is a human has not been enough to persuade our fellow Americans that they shouldn't be killed. Think about that for a second. You mean that if I show you it's a human, that's not enough to change your mind? You mean if I show you it's a human, you're still going to say, it doesn't matter, they're not a person with rights? Your historical blinker should be going off, going, uh, didn't we used to say other humans weren't persons? This is exactly how Nazis viewed Jews and racists viewed blacks. Who of them made the case that these victims were not biologically human? None of them. They all admitted they were human, but they weren't persons, so therefore they didn't have the rights of personhood or rights that should be protected by those governments. And we're doing it again at the tune of a million babies a year. But let's start with the science. What does the science teach us about life in the womb, where we all came from? Well, the science of embryology, right, the study of the embryo, the biology of human beings before they're born, the science of embryology teaches us this. From the moment of conception, right, sperm and egg meet, sperm and egg die, new human being. From that moment, there's a distinct living and whole human being. What do those terms mean? Let's fly through them quickly. This is what the science teaches. I'm merely summarizing the science of embryology for you. Distinct means separate, right? You know what distinct means. It means unique. It means I'm not you and you're not me. There's only one of you. There will only ever be one of you, and that's how God made it. So if the unborn child is distinct from the moment of conception, what does that mean to the abortion issue? It means the body in her body is not her body. And don't we all know this at a self-evident level? Do we really want to admit that if it's her body and her choice, pregnant women have 20 fingers and 20 toes, two brains, two hearts, double all organs, two different blood types existing simultaneously, potentially, two different DNA codes? Oh, and if she's pregnant with a boy, <laughs> now pregnant women have male genitalia. 
Now, of course, the left will insist that that actually is true, right? Men can be women and women can be men, but that's blatantly ridiculous, right? Because the body in her body is not her body. So they're distinct. The unborn child is also living. What does this mean? Well, it means that dead things don't grow, and the unborn child meets all the requirements for a living thing that you learned in high school biology. It also means that unborn children develop themselves from within. So pregnant women don't will their unborn children to develop. Right, I have a wife who's almost eight months pregnant. Here's something that never happens. She never shakes me in the middle of the night saying, babe, wake up, wake up. Come remind our baby to grow. Come whisper to my womb. We don't want her to forget. Because unborn children develop themselves from within, independent of the wishes of their parents. So they're living. And they're whole. What does it mean to be a whole human being? Sometimes we confuse wholeness with development, okay? Don't make that mistake. Sometimes we confuse wholeness with capacities or functions that we will all gain given time and development. That's not what it means to be a whole human being. A whole human being is a human being who has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species. Let me give you an example, okay? I'm 29 and I'm not 40. Now, my wife recently found out that men don't reach their mental peak until their 40s, and she was very encouraged. <laughs> <laughs> really holding out hope for me. I think I might be not reaching my potential, so you can pray for us. But anyway, so there are aspects of my development I have not realized yet, correct? Does that mean I'm not a whole human being now? Well, my opponents will probably insist that, but of course not, right? Your children are less developed than you. Does that mean they're not a whole human being now? Again, you might feel like that sometimes, but of course not, right? So similarly, even though the unborn child hasn't realized different aspects of their development that they will give in time, it doesn't mean that they're not a whole human being at the moment of conception. So we all find ourselves on a different tick mark on the continuum of human development. But when did that continuum begin? The moment of conception. Here's, here's again what I mean by this. Do you guys remember those old Polaroid cameras? Remember, it spits the photo out as soon as you take it? I mean, that was like, as all hipster things do, the old becomes new, right? So now they're back in style, I guess. So it spits out the photo and you shake it and you wait for it to develop, right? Let's say that you got to go on a safari excursion in Africa, and everyone has their digital cameras, but you have a Polaroid camera. And then the tour guide tells you on this safari vehicle, we're entering an area where a black jaguar was sighted recently. Now, black jaguars are rarely seen and even more rarely photographed, right? So you're kind of pumped. But after four hours, you're only so patient. So all of your friends are back on their phones, right? They're watching movies, they're on their iPhones. But you're alert, and you have your eyes glued to the window with your Polaroid camera. And right before sunset, right before twilight, as all of your friends are distracted, you get lucky, and you see a black jaguar sprint out from the bushes, leap across the, the vehicle in front of you, and you capture a picture of an airborne. He lands, he runs away, and you're like, look at this, look at this. And your friends are like, what, what? And you're like, I got a picture of a black Jaguar on my Polaroid camera. What if I tore the photo out of your hands at that moment, ripped it up into little pieces, and threw it out the window? Now, some of you are looking like, at me like I actually did that to you. <laughs> now, what if I responded to your open-mouthed horror, and I said, brother, sister, calm down, chill out. Because, see, that actually was not a picture of a black Jaguar. It was a black smudgy on a white piece of paper. You'd probably respond by saying, what? Seth, the Jaguar was already there. We just couldn't see him yet. Everything that was necessary for that photo to realize its full development was already present when the photo got spit out. It just needed time. Do you see what I mean? From the moment of conception, the unborn child has everything they need to realize their full growth and development as a participating member of the human species, even if we can't see him or her yet. All they need is time. That's what it means to be a whole human being.
So the science says that from the moment of conception, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You didn't come from an embryo. You once were an embryo. Zygote, embryo, fetus, infant, toddler, teenager, grandma, and grandpa. Different terms that describe the same human being at different stages of their physical development. But it's the same human being from the moment of conception. So what's the unborn? They're a human being. This is plain, undisputed scientific fact. Anyone who disagrees with me does not have a bone to pick with the pro-life movement. They have a bone to pick with reality. Okay, so it's a human. But then your pro-choice friend, right, says, but it's not a person. It doesn't have rights. Therefore, we can kill them through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Whoa. So we actually have to make a case for the equal value of the unborn. Isn't that wild? It's not enough to just say, look, they're humans. The science says they're humans. We have to make a case for the personhood and rights of the unborn child. How do we do that? We make our case using philosophy, right? Philosophy deals with questions of ultimate concern, with first principles. We make a human equality argument for the rights of the unborn child. And it's important to couch it in the language of human equality. Right? Because if we're all equal, then we're equal in virtue of the only thing we have in common, a human nature, which begins at the moment of conception. But what do our opponents insist? Well, they insist that their position is advocating for women's equality, that it's part of women's equality to have the right to kill their own children in the womb. So let's make an equality argument for the unborn child. It goes like this. There is no value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Let me put that in an even shorter sentence for you. There's no value-giving difference between you, the unborn human, and you, the born human, that makes it okay to kill you, the unborn human. Does that make sense? Now, does that mean that there are no differences between unborn humans and born humans, friends? No, of course not. <laughs> if you have that 16-week photo, that your mother still has of you in the womb, and we hold it up to your face today, could we identify any differences? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm not saying there's no differences. I'm saying those differences are not relevant to the rights of the child in the womb. They have no bearing on their right to life. Why? Because the unborn child differs from us in the same exact ways that we differ from one another. So the pro-choice individual at this point will say, okay, it's a human, but it's not a person because it's so different than us. Come on, only a Republican rube would believe that there's any human equality between fetuses and women already born. Very well, what are those differences? This is actually important because it, it is the very differences between us in the womb and us after we're born, friends, that the pro-choice advocate uses to justify abortion. They point to the differences between unborn humans and born humans and say, because they differ from us in these ways, and I'm going to tell you what those ways are, they're not persons and have no rights. But as I'll point out, because the unborn differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another, if you use those differences to justify killing the unborn human in the womb, they can be used to kill humans outside the womb. In short, the right to kill unborn human beings cannot be confined to the womb. In fact, it works equally well to kill born people. So what are those differences? Well, they're summarized for you in the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. Now, we're in Chino. I know this is difficult because we can't even spell the word snow, but uh, work with me. SLED, S-L-E-D, size, level of development, environment or location, and dependency. These are the only four differences between the fetus that we once were and the adult that we are today. 
and they're the very differences used by the pro-abortion movement to justify abortion. So let's see if these differences can be used to justify killing the child, or else we'd have to accept these same differences to justify killing you. Is the unborn child smaller than the newborn child? Yeah, but newborn children are smaller than toddlers, and toddlers are smaller than teenagers. I'm six foot three, which makes me taller than, what, 98% of the room, maybe? Sorry, the rest of you are non-persons. And if I killed you, I could call it reproductive justice, because if you really think about it, you're smaller. So what do our friends tell us about the child in the womb? Oh, you mean that small thing you can't even see at four weeks? How is that a person with rights? Dehumanizing them simply because they're smaller. But we differ from one another ourselves according to our size. So size cannot be used to justify killing the unborn. What about level of development? Yeah, the unborn child is less developed than the newborn child, but newborn children are less developed than toddlers, and toddlers are less developed than teenagers. Your parents are more developed than you, your children are less developed than you. Does that mean that grandparents can kill their grandchildren because grandparents are more developed? What? Our human rights have nothing to do with our size or level of development. They have to do with the only thing we have in common, a human nature, which began at the moment of conception. What about environment or location? Yeah, the unborn child is located in a very unique environment. It's called a womb. By the way, we're all former womb dwellers. That's where we all came from, right? We're all unaborted human beings. That great uh, con conservative troll or leftist troll, rather, Ronald Reagan once said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. And unfortunately, our friends scoff at us and we go, what a stupid, pithy saying, really? I mean, you advocate for killing children in a womb you once came from. As Frank Beckwith once said, where one is has no bearing on who one is. But thanks to American abortion law, friends, you can slaughter a baby through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Why? Because it's in the womb. Because it's in that location. So the Democratic Party once said, that slaves are the property of the plantation owners whose land they lived on, and now babies are the property of their mothers whose bodies they live in. Where one is has no bearing on who one is. But apparently, the fetus fairy flies over during childbirth and sprinkles magical personhood-conferring fairy dust that confers personhood to the child as it exits the birth canal. And when that last toe leaves the birth canal, congratulations, personhood! It's a miracle! Wild. Your location has no bearing on your rights. And yet you're probably familiar with partial birth abortions, right? Illegal now, but no thanks to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who tried to keep that procedure legal three different times, where you pull a child out by its legs, and as the legs are flailing around outside of the birth canal, but the head and shoulders are still in it, you take scissors and you shove it into the back of the neck, you open those scissors, then you stick a suction catheter tube into the back of the neck and you suck the brains out. Yes, I'm speaking very graphically, why? Because what does the left rely on to indoctrinate the next generation with their ideas? Euphemisms! Calling killing babies reproductive healthcare and reproductive justice. So according to the logic of abortion advocates that say where one is does have a bearing on who you are, I guess children killed in partial birth abortions were half persons. You see, their legs and their buttocks were persons, but their neck and head wasn't, because it was halfway in the birth canal. What? The insanity of choice. What about the last difference, dependency, yeah? Well, the baby's dependent on the mother. 
So our friends insist that they can be killed through all nine months of pregnancy because it's up to the mother to decide whether to give support to the child that's dependent on her. Friends, it is in virtue of being an unborn human being to be dependent on your mother. By the way, does that dependency stop after birth? What happens if you leave an infant in a crib and do nothing? They die and you're charged with infanticide as the parent, but what if the mother says, my breast, my choice, my body, my choice, I don't have to give breast milk to that child. Will that argument hold up in a court of law? What an inversion of justice, friends. Rather than our country saying, baby, it's because you're in need of support. It's because you're dependent on me. Therefore, I have a greater obligation to give you support, to take care of you. No, instead, we say as our country, baby, it's because you're dependent on me that it gives me the right to kill you and call it reproductive health care. So are we shocked that when we dehumanize life at one stage, we dehumanize it as another? When we say you're dependent on me, baby, I can kill you, we say to our grandparents, I don't want to care for you anymore, you're dependent, eugenics. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. And nowhere is that more true today than the issue of abortion. Size, level of development, environment or location and dependency, the only four differences between the baby that you once were and the adult that you are today, and those differences cannot be used to justify killing you in the womb because the unborn child differs from us in the same ways that we differ from one another. Now notice, I've just made a case for life that stands outside of citing Bible verses, but I'm communicating biblical truth nonetheless. That's how we bring moral clarity to the issue of abortion. If we're going to be equipped to engage, friends, we need to do that. The second way we bring clarity to this issue and equip ourselves to engage on the battlefield of abortion is by bringing spiritual clarity to the issue of abortion. Why is this important, friends? Because our progressive brothers and sisters insist that because the Bible doesn't condemn abortion, Christians shouldn't either. Because they can't show you a verse that says, thou shalt not abort, therefore Christians should not speak out on abortion. In short, they're telling you that whatever the Bible does not condemn, it therefore condones or is neutral on. Do you see how this could be problematic? There are lots of things the Bible doesn't condemn but can't we still develop spiritual clarity on those issues? For example, the Bible doesn't condemn forced female circumcision. I guess our pro-choice progressive brothers and sisters would say that Christians shouldn't speak out on that. The Bible does not condemn the lynching of homosexuals. I guess we can't have clarity on that. And the Bible says it has nothing to say about cloning or genetically engineered babies. Can we therefore not establish spiritual clarity on those questions? Now, our progressive brothers and sisters would probably insist, no, Christian, let me, let me explain it to you. You see, there's theological concepts and precepts that we can draw out from Scripture and use those to develop spiritual clarity on those other issues you just mentioned. Uh-huh. That would apply to abortion as well. God has given us all we need to develop spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion. So what theological precepts or concepts can we draw from Scripture to develop the spiritual clarity for people in our lives like Tim Keller and those who follow him who say, actually, you have liberty of conscience to vote for the party that condones, celebrates, and profits off of the dismemberment of image bearers in a womb? What concepts can we draw from Scripture? Well, let's turn to the beginning of the human story. In Genesis, we learn that God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is called the Imago Dei, right? But I, I fear sometimes we get so familiar with these concepts that we forget what this means. It means that the God who stood before all time existed, 
in perfect unity with himself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, said, I'm going to create everything. I'm going to laugh animals into existence. I'm going to drop oceans. I'm going to breathe out the Milky Way. And then I'm going to make human beings in my image, in my likeness, and give them dominance and dominion as stewards of the creation I've made to take care of. He looks at you and he says, you look just like me. You're more infinitely valuable than anything else I've ever created or ever will. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. A fascinating truth. You have the divine spark of the creator of the universe in your very soul. So what does that mean to this issue? Well, if every human being is created in the image of God, and what did we just learn from the science that unborn children are human beings? So therefore, unborn children are created in the image of God. Hmm. This is why the prenatal John the Baptist is doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room pregnant with the creator of the universe. This is why David says, surely I was sinful from the moment of conception. Oh, I didn't know blobs of tissue could be sinful. This is why Psalm 139 says, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex, for knitting me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was woven together in the dark of the earth. Fascinating truth. That's what it means to be created in the image of God. So unborn children are created in the image of God. All right, what other concept could we draw out from Scripture to develop spiritual clarity on the issue of abortion? Well, what are the greatest commandments in Scripture? Well, Jesus, in his brilliance, he actually simplified them for us, didn't he? What did he say in the New Testament? All the law and the prophets hang on to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the question for our progressive brothers and sisters who insist that we can vote for the party of slaughtering babies in the womb. Is the unborn our neighbor? Well, if every human being is our neighbor, then the unborn is our neighbor. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? So a lawyer approaches Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's an important question. (laughs) How do I get to heaven? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He tells him, he nails the answer, by the way. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, back to those two greatest commandments. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, what? And he was my neighbor. Did the lawyer really not know who his neighbor was? I mean, he just nailed the answer on what are the greatest commandments. He just nailed it. Great theologian, right? but you don't know who your neighbor is? Is he asking Jesus, Lord, I just forgot. Can you help me remember? Because I'm just so spiritual, Lord, you see. I don't want to leave anyone out of the category of neighbor. I want to make sure I put them all into that category. No, what was he doing? The lawyer was creating categories of neighbor and non-neighbor in order to shirk himself of the responsibility of loving those that he didn't want to, that he didn't view as neighbors. Brothers and sisters, there is no other class of human beings today that the question, are they really our neighbors, is more frequently asked of than pre-born image bearers in the womb. Are they really, though? Maybe maybe I can actually vote for the party that says we can rip their limbs off, because they're not really neighbors. I have liberty of conscience to vote for their slaughter, actually. Hmm. How are we to love a neighbor that our country says it is legal to kill and whose deaths you're forced to fund? Well, I have a very uh, scandalous answer. Stop killing them! 
Use the political tools God has given you in this constitutional republic where political power is put into the hands of the people and use that voice to make it illegal to kill preborn image bearers of God by restoring their personhood and making it illegal to kill them. Shocker. Moral clarity, spiritual clarity, ought to lead to political clarity. Why is that important? Because the other side has no qualms about being perceived as partisan through their work to attack image bearers in the womb and pro-lifers who seek to protect them. They have no qualms about you seeing them as partisan hacks through their political work to attack the unborn. It is high time that Christians abandon their concern over partisan labels and being perceived as partisan by other Christians or non-Christians so that we can pick up these political tools and use them to protect these children. What a scandalous truth, though. You can't say that from the pulpit, right? Many Christians and leaders like Tim Keller, friends, refuse to act politically to protect babies from dismemberment because they insist the Bible doesn't allow us to tell other Christians how to vote or not vote for. Very well. Let's see exactly how the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters how they can or can't vote. Oh, The Bible commands us to hold back those staggering towards slaughter, Proverbs 24, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, Proverbs 38, Proverbs 31, 8, and to seek the good of the city where I have sent you into exile. Oh, but Seth, that was about the Israelites. Yes, we are also exiles in this land because we await a savior from heaven. Hmm. So it is a privilege and freedom bought with much blood that Christians in America are able to speak up for those who cannot within a political system that gives power to the people. To refuse to use that form of speech to end state-sanctioned slaughter is itself wrong. For as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the man who fought his own genocidal country and was assassinated for his assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler once said, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. He said that about his own genocidal country. And pastors like Tim Keller today will praise the legacy of Bonhoeffer. Ooh, if Bonhoeffer was here today, boy, would he rip us a new one. We praise these figures and these social reformers, and we do the very thing that they lambasted their society for participating in. Like Israelites, we are exiles in this land, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. So like the Israelites, we should seek the good of the city or the country that we are exiled in. America, but you cannot seek the good of America while neglecting to use your political voice to end the state-sanctioned genocide of abortion, or worse yet, use that voice to empower and expand the very party committed to that genocide. (laughs) Keller is obviously so confused to create a moral equivalency between today's two political parties, because in defending the Christians' political freedom to do whatever they want, do you know what Tim Keller is telling us? God doesn't care about your vote. It means nothing to him. You can use that vote however you want. Oh, but, but one party is saying all these humans aren't persons. Yeah, it doesn't matter. You can use your vote however you want. That is what he's telling us, and that is becoming very popular in American evangelicalism today. But friends, I assure you that a vote which can help end the genocide of baby image bearers is a, go- is a vote God cares deeply about. Now, let's go back to whether we can tell people how to vote or not vote for. I know, this is going to be scandalous. What is the best way to love your neighbor, which is the second greatest commandment, 
if it's legal to intentionally kill that class of neighbors, hmm, what is the best way to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves if a country legalized the slaughter of those innocent speechless victims? Well, the best way to love and speak up for that class of victims would firstly be to stop their slaughter and ensure they were protected. Now, there are lots of ways to love our preborn neighbors and their mothers and fathers, amen? And Christians should be participating in all of them. But what would be the first and most important way to love a class of neighbors that it was legal to kill? To make it illegal to kill them. To make it illegal to enslave them. That would be the first and most important way. And the way we do that in America is our, through our political voice. Our vote, that is the biggest and strongest voice we have here. So can we accomplish that by voting for the very party responsible for, committed to, and profiting off of the killing? Anyone with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex would have to answer no. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who not to vote for. You can't tell your neighbor you love them and also tell them it should be legal to kill them. But scripture also tells us, brothers and sisters, that whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If we have the ability to use our power and voice to end the genocide of innocence, we should do that. That is the right thing to do. If we're commanded to speak up for those who cannot, but we refuse to use the only voice we have that can actually stop the genocide in the first place, then we are in sin. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. God will not hold us guiltless. And if anyone tells you otherwise, simply ask them if they would defend not using their political voice to end slavery in 1850. Their answer will tell you everything you need to know about how they view the unborn. If they insist, as Keller has in previous writings, that it was a moral wrong for Christians in the 1850 to not act politically to end slavery, but they don't say the same thing about the unborn, they are not convinced that the unborn is truly an image bearer of God with equal rights. And so we go back to our, our case for life, saying they're humans, and any difference you justify using to kill them can be used to justify killing you. So yes, Pastor Tim, the Bible allows us to tell our brothers and sisters who to vote for. Scandalous. Friends, those who say otherwise are, as Hadley Arks once said, not convinced of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Because if they were, they would demand that Christians act politically to protect these image bearers. There's a lot of political myths being created right now. And the reason they're being created, friends, is in order to siphon votes away from the only political party reasonably situated to protect unborn children. We hear these political myths every four years on the issue of abortion, and they're crafted by people who either hate the unborn or pay lip service to the pro-life movement, but when you look at their life, they've done nothing to protect the unborn. And I want to go over two quick political myths because they become very popular right now, every four years conveniently. And they're being used to confuse you, siphon votes away from the pro-life party, and create political confusion within the ranks of the church, the institution predisposed to protect the unborn because we believe every human being is created in the image of God. What's that first myth? The first myth goes something like this. You're not really pro-life unless you do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know this one, right? You're not really pro-life unless you mm, support open borders, universal basic income, universal health care, you say America's systemically racist, you fight sex trafficking and poverty. Then I'll, then I'll say you can be pro-life. 
Interesting, what am I supposed to do? Fight sex trafficking on Monday, poverty on Tuesday, equal pay on Wednesday, racism on Thursday, and abortion on Saturday, Friday, and if I have time to hang out with my family, maybe I can do that? Then I'm pro-life, gotcha. But too many pro-lifers out of a desire to avoid accusations of hypocrisy accept this premise. But how does it follow that because the pro-life movement opposes intentionally killing innocent human beings in the womb and supports legislation to protect them, that we're therefore responsible for a whole other cornucopia of societal ills? We as Christians have a broad and inclusive duty and ethic to love all neighbors, amen? But how does it follow that because the pro-life movement opposes killing babies in the womb, we have to prove that pro-life ethic by fighting every other injustice? It's scandalous. By the way, did you know no other movement gets this critique? Was Oscar Schindler not really anti-Holocaust because he only tried to save Jews? Is the American Cancer Society not really anti-cancer because they only try to focus on solving one disease and not many? I guess so. And was Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln not really against slavery because they only tried to abolish one form of evil? Ridiculous. So the selective application of this critique, that to be truly for or against something, you have to fight all injustices, gives away the game, doesn't it? It shows that they don't really believe the preborn should be protected in our laws. The second political myth you're told a lot is that pro-lifers shouldn't be single-issue voters. Uh-oh. You know this one. You can't go to the polls with the unborn in mind above all other issues. You need to approach the polls and equally hold on the same moral playing field. Abortion, racism, sexism, homophobia, equal pay, poverty, universal basic income. Then, then that, that's actually how you have to vote. My only question for our friends who say this is, would you say the same thing about slavery? Those pesky abolitionists going to the polls, trying to only vote single issue to end the institution of slavery and the slave trade? <laughs> what bigots. Now, abortion isn't the only issue of our day, given. Any more than slavery was the only issue in 1860 or killing Jews was the only issue in 1940, but they were both the dominant issues of their day. While many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. We understand that. We understand that slavery was the issue of its day, and killing a million babies a year in America on a country founded on the idea of the right to life is the issue of our day. How you act and respond to abortion today, friends, ready, is exactly how you would have responded to slavery in the 1850s. If you want to know if you would truly be an abolitionist or not in the 1850s, how you engage abortion today is how you would engage slavery. It's easy to say through our chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis once said, that we would never be racist. If we were plopped down in 1850, huh, I'd probably be the president. I'd probably be Frederick Douglass. Easy to say now, but that's how powerful bigotry is. It blinds you to obvious truths about human nature, doesn't it? The selective application of the single-issue voting critique reveals that our critics and some pro-lifers who have adopted this belief either don't believe the unborn are fully human, or if they do, they don't believe that the genocide of those humans is serious enough, serious enough to justify voting single-issue. But it is. You know why? Because the right to life is the most fundamental right. As long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence and judicial philosophy is completely foreign to the Founding Fathers. By ignoring the natural right to life that all human beings have, we should not be surprised when that government ignores every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. And you're watching it play out in real time, friends. Real time. Leaders across our country refusing to protect the natural right to property, 
against the theft, looting, and burning by people convinced that America is not exceptional but evil. Leaders ignoring the natural rights to liberty, to work, to freely associate where you choose, and to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment. Any shocker that they're ignoring the natural right to liberty and property? Maybe it's because 48 years ago they decided that they were going to ignore the first and most important of all rights, life, and then deny them to 63 million children in the womb since 1973. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. That is the most fundamental right. So friends, we can't be caught sleeping anymore for our opponents and the enemies of the unborn are engaged in this battle. They are on the battlefield awake and serving their father in attacking unborn children. And we're asleep again, just like Gethsemane, when Judas was awake and animated in doing his father's bidding and Christians were sleeping in the garden, weren't they? Wake up, pray for me. And we were sleeping. We're asleep today. While the enemies of the preborn are animated and engaged, boy, are they livid. They are excited to defend abortion. And they're committing their time, energy, and money to defend abortion. Are we doing the same to defend life? Friends, what are the threats to our preborn neighbors this election season? I'm going to tell you exactly what they are, and I'm going to literally quote verbatim from the lips of Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. I'm not creating a false image of their position so that you can demean them. I'm telling you exactly what they believe. They will codify Roe versus Wade into federal law so that no state can protect children in their state. Kamala Harris has said she will institute pre-clearance guidelines for pro-life states that want to pass pro-life laws. Let me tell you what that means. It means if and when Joe Biden becomes president and Kamala Harris is immediately declared president because he's mentally unfit, she will sit in the Oval Office, she will look at pro-life bills coming from Georgia and Tennessee and she'll go, uh, not, not cleared, pre-clearance, destroying federalism and the democratic will to rein in their botched ideology. What else will they do? They'll add four more Supreme Court justices. And don't we know this because they just won't answer the question? Will you promise to not pack the courts? Um, uh, let's talk about something else. They're telling you, yes, they will pack the court with four Supreme Court justices who have the jurisprudence of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, destroying the pro-life movement and its progress for decades. Oh, of course, and then make DC a state so they get two more Democratic senators. Abolish the Hyde Amendment, which keeps tax dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements and is responsible for saving over two million babies since it was passed and increasing the tax funding to Planned Parenthood by the millions. Unborn children will be targeted and rounded up for slaughter unlike any other time in American history. The Joe Biden-Kamala Harris political ticket is to unborn children what Hitler was to the Jews. And they will do everything they can to stop the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett, who I thought was an accomplished feminist slay queen. Seven kids! about to get nominated to the highest court in the land. It's almost as if the accusations of sexism only work when they fit in their political ideology. Because they know that a woman who's accomplished more than they ever have while having five biological children and adopting two beautiful black babies from Haiti, about to be nominated to the highest court in the land, destroys their entire victim narrative which is that you can't do that, women. Which is that if you're a woman and you want to be successful, you'll probably likely have to kill a few children in the womb on the way to your success. 
and she destroys all of their boxes and narratives for women. Let me tell you something, the pro-life movement is the pro-woman movement because it tells women you do have the inward strength of soul to embrace motherhood for the child you're already a mother to and accomplish everything else as well because you're an image bearer of God with great potential and beauty. That is a message of equality. That is a message of inclusivity. And you're about to watch her get torn and ripped. Not literally, but of course they say that you can do that to humans in the womb as long as they're in the womb. But you're about to watch her legacy get ripped in half because she will likely vote to overturn abortion. These are the political threats facing our pre-born neighbors and those who seek to protect them. Listen, friends, if this is part of your story, okay, if you have paid for, arranged for an abortion, or had an abortion, I just want to pause really quick. And I want to tell you what I believe Jesus would say to you in the next 30 seconds if he were preaching this sermon. I believe he would tell you that he is just as eager to forgive the sin of abortion as any other sin. <laughs> abortion is not a blacklist sin. And by the way, if you're feeling guilt and shame and you haven't reconciled with what you've done and you haven't found forgiveness and healing, I would point you to the story of King David, a man who rather than leading his troops in a battle he should have been leading was playing peeping Tom, checking out a woman taking a shower, sleeps with her, she gets pregnant, he arranges the murder of an innocent human being to hide and cover up his sexual sin. How many of you have maybe killed your own unborn child to hide and cover up your sexual sin so no one knew? But listen, if there was grace for King David, there's grace for you. Because when the prophet Nathan confronted David, David hits his knees in repentance after quickly justifying his sin, as we all do. Repents, and God renews David and restores him and uses him powerfully and calls him a man after his own heart. But did that mean that there were no consequences? No. David loses his son, his preborn son, and what does he say? My son will not return to me, but I will go to him. Do you know what that means for those of you who have had an abortion? It means not only is Jesus faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, but it also means that if you repent and accept that gospel of grace, you're going to see your baby in heaven again one day, and they are seated on the lap of Jesus waiting to welcome you into glory. That's what that means. That is a truth and a hope only available to the Christian. So hear that and receive that and know that there are people, pastors and individuals in this church who would love to walk through a journey of healing with you and like King David, turn your ashes into beauty and use you to help where you used to hurt. Hear that and receive that. But friends, the hard truth that we all need to hear and reconcile with is this. It is a moral wrong to vote for a party who makes it part of their platform to promote and expand the slaughter of innocent human beings. That is not an option for the Christ follower. So what can you do? What can we do? We're weeks away from the most important election for the preborn, which is every election. What can we do? Love your neighbor. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, two pastors walked by on the other side of the road to avoid a bleeding victim who needed help. You see, they couldn't be bothered. They were heading to the church to plan a sermon. Couldn't be bothered by a bleeding victim. Friends, the unborn is the greatest bleeding victim in America today. That doesn't mean there's other victims. It simply means that when we kill one million babies a year legally, they're the greatest bleeding victim. And how many of us on our way to work or on our way to church literally, like the Levite and the priest, drive by on the other side of the road where there's a clinic, where there's a women's health center who kill children in the womb? 
and do nothing about it. And yet the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another, sees the bleeding victim and he stops in his tracks and he bandages the man's wounds and he pours on oil and wine and he puts him on his own donkey. So he had to walk and took him to the nearest inn and nursed him back to health. And then he told the innkeeper, I'm a busy man, I have to go now, but when I come back, I'm gonna cut you a check for any of the costs that accumulated in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love a bleeding victim. He didn't walk up to him and say, well, uh, you know, great commission, let me tell you the gospel. He saved a bleeding victim who needed help, and the unborn is our greatest bleeding victim, friends. Our minimal responsibility to our pre-born neighbors is the same as the Good Samaritans to that bleeding victim that day, which was to sacrifice our time our energy and our money, to love them and to save them from death. What does that look like practically? Firstly, take personal responsibility, friends, to get 10 people to the polls. We all pray for this state to flip a certain color this election cycle, but if that doesn't happen, it's very important to, lo- to vote in the local and congressional, okay? If we want to accomplish that great event, come back to California, we need to get pro-life candidates elected and into office who recognize their only job description, which is to protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens, and that necessitates the inclusion of our pre-born neighbors. Take personal responsibility to get 10 people to the polls to vote for life. Secondly, learn how to persuasively and graciously communicate your pro-life views. I need you to be an ambassador for the unborn, to be a voice for the unborn, and to know how to do that. But I know you're not gonna remember everything I said this morning. That's okay. Take time to learn how to do this and be a voice for the unborn. You can sign up for my newsletter at sethgruber.com sethgruber.com, and I'm just gonna send you free resources. It's for you, I want you equipped to engage. Secondly, you can subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. Remember, we're all unaborted. Same thing, I create this for you and for the students I speak to, to equip them to defend life, okay? If you wanna leave us a five-star rating and review, obviously that's gonna cause more young people to see it on the podcast platforms and maybe change their minds if they listen. But listen to that, it's for you. I want you to be warriors for life. I have one other thing I want to share with you that will be very significant this election cycle. I teamed up with the Colson Center for Worldview, John Stone Street, and My Faith Votes to do a massive digital event that's airing at 5 p.m. next Sunday, and the church will provide you more details on Wednesday and next Sunday, called How Then Shall We Vote? Life and Death on the Ballot. Okay, if you want to RSVP for this event, go to myfaithvotes.org slash how-then-shall-we-vote. How then shall we vote? You can RSVP, John Stone Street from Colson Center, Paul Isaacs from My Faith Votes, and me and some of the individuals from our organization will be talking about all of these ideas. We're praying this will make an electoral impact for life, especially in swing states and swing counties. So share this with people. You can RSVP now at that URL. That's to equip you to engage, okay? Thirdly, sign up as a sidewalk counselor or volunteer with a pro-life ministry. Listen, we need to put our time on the line. We need to sacrifice our time to engage. If you want to know how you would live to end slavery in the 1850s, you're doing it now. 
How are we going to use our time to protect these children? There's a pro-life ministry here at this church. I don't know if you knew that. You can talk to Ron Rose and sign up to do something. But I think the most significant thing we can do as Christians is to stand outside the doors of death, literally in front of the buildings where children are killed, and say, we will adopt your baby. We will pay for your delivery fee. We will let you live in our back house. We will do whatever you need to choose life. We love you. We're here for you. And we will go the distance with you. Pro-life organizations have done studies showing that if individuals are just standing outside of abortion mills and praying, almost 80% of women who drive into that parking lot will turn around and go home because they don't want to be seen walking into that clinic. What does that tell you? God has written eternity on the hearts of man, and God's reign falls on the just and the unjust, so even those who are walking away from God can't help but acknowledge their conscience and that still small voice that says, don't do that, and we need to be there in those moments as Christians to give them a message of eternal hope and a message of immediate hope, which is that you don't have to kill your child, we will do whatever you need. What if the church did that in America? At every abortion clinic across this country, we would bankrupt the abortion industry in a matter of years. Use your time. Lastly, support pro-life organizations. We need to put our money where our mouth is. If you have the means, like the Good Samaritan, you have to sacrifice financially to protect the pre-born. Like Oscar Schindler, we can trade money for lives. There are many pro-life organizations. Find one, support them. Support your local pregnancy resource center, okay? And this church does that. Thank you and amen. If you want to support what I do, because I go in to speak to young people around the country and say, abandon these ideas. Here's why the pro-life position is reasonable to believe. You can support my work as well. If you want to, you can just text babies <laughs> to 474747. Text babies to 47 three times, and you can support my work. I want to leave you with this reminder, friends. This old man approached this pro-life singer years ago. She was, she was a warrior, pro-life singer, pro-life activist by the name of Penny Lee. And this old man approaches Penny after an event, and he shares with her this heartbreaking story. And I want to tell you his story. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy. We had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews, but like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do to stop it, <laughs> right? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle from a distance, and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by. We grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle in those cars. Week after week, that train whistle would blow. We would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry to us as they passed our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We could do nothing to help these poor, miserable people, yet their screams tormented us. We knew exactly at the time that the whistle would blow, and we decided the only way to keep from becoming disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time the train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. If some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed and no one talks about it much anymore, but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. 
Friends, for 48 years, the American church has been singing louder over the silent screams of preborn image bearers as their limbs are ripped from their body or they're poisoned to death in the womb, and you're supposed to call it reproductive justice and champion it. The silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs was so loud that it led the renowned theologian Francis Schaeffer to once say these words, every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe one day when we stand before God, we're gonna give a personal account for what we did or did not do to end the genocide of God's image bearers in a womb that he entered human history in. I pray that we may say with William Wilberforce, let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene. God is waiting for his people to stand in the gap and the world is watching. Will we engage or will we surrender? I will not be surrendering. I will be hitting that battlefield. And I know I'm going to see you on that battlefield. Go and give them heaven. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to that very important, uh, timely message on this issue. Listen, if you listen to that entire sermon of mine, then I know I'm going to see you on this battlefield of life, engaging on behalf of our unborn brothers and sisters who cannot engage or defend themselves. And the results of this election are either going to set back the pro-life movement and their efforts in decades or propel us forward in a way that maybe we haven't been in decades. And so either way, the commitment of pro-lifers is going to remain unchanged regardless of how and where this election goes. And so I'm going to be recommitting myself to getting into more schools than ever before, creating more content for young people, and begin creating content specifically for those who disagree with me and for those on the fence to engage them online with this type of content. So to support this show and help us reach more people, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Check out our frontiers and perks. Also, if you haven't given the show a rating and review yet, please do it. Give us five stars. Let us know what you, you think. Leave a nice review. It helps us climb up the ratings. And then young people who are just checking out news and politics, they're going to see the show, click on it, and maybe give it a listen. So thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Pray for this election. Pray for life. Pray for our president and pray for our preborn brothers and sisters for their legal protection and for their dignity to be restored to them and for the church to wake up as the sleeping lion that it is and reassert its moral and spiritual authority in this culture. God bless.